All right, if you want to join me in the book of Exodus chapter 7, where we left off, Moses and Aaron have uh, gone to Pharaoh once now initially, uh, proclaiming to him the message that uh, Yahweh God had for him, which was that God wanted Pharaoh to let his people go, that they might go out into the wilderness and to serve the Lord and to worship and make sacrifice to him there. And of course, Pharaoh's uh, very stubborn and arrogant response to that, who is Yahweh, uh, that I should obey him. And again, we need to remember that in that day, not only were uh, the Egyptians a people who were polytheistic with many, many gods, but Pharaoh himself was deified. And in Pharaoh's eyes, he himself uh, was a chief god. He himself was deity, and his mindset was, I know about this deity and that deity, and I realize uh, (laughs) that I'm a deity, Uh, but who is this uh, Yahweh God that you're trying to tell me about that I should actually submit to his authority and to obey him. And remember, he then sort of turned up the the pressure cooker. He turned up the heat upon the children of Israel at that time and caused them to be put to even more rigorous labor. He took away from them their provision of straw and so forth and the making of the bricks and the architectural work that they were doing in their slave labor And this just sort of really brought a tremendous discouragement to Moses as he felt like, wow, Lord, I thought you asked me to do this, and I stepped into this and moved forward. It seems like thus far there's been nothing but a lot of resistance and a lot of challenges and a lot of difficulties, Uh, and it doesn't seem that Pharaoh's being very responsive. But again, we have to remember that the Lord also told Moses that there would not be initial Success that he would not initially respond, that Pharaoh was initially going to be resistant, and that God was going to use the whole scope of this process to work on a much grander scale, not only in the life of Moses and Aaron and the children of Israel, but God wanted to reveal himself to Pharaoh. God wanted to reveal himself to the Egyptian people. And so often, like in our lives, God has a much bigger picture and a much broader thing that he's doing than what we see in our little uh, finite gaze of what's right in front of us, kind of our tunnel vision of, Lord, but this doesn't seem to be exactly what I want or what I expected or it's not happening as quick as I would like it to and so forth. And God, through this process, remember, is reassuring Moses, encouraging him uh, that he is at work. And uh, we left off there in the end of chapter 6, Uh, with Moses again presenting to the Lord, look, Lord, the people got upset with me and they won't even listen to me. They're questioning the call of God in my life now because they're saying, uh, this calling is really great, Moses. Uh, You tell us God's called you and we follow you. And uh, it seems like things are getting worse rather than better. It doesn't seem like anything's happening. Uh, We stepped into this with you. You said that you were, uh, you know, led by the Lord. And uh, there's not a whole lot of evidence of that so far. And and the people are, are sort of questioning and and remember they were uh, critical towards Moses uh, as their uh, sort of initial and new leader in this venture that they decided to take listening to his advice that God had spoken to him and was leading them uh, into this place of deliverance so Moses struggling with that is basically telling the Lord look uh, if they won't even listen to me uh, how in the world is Pharaoh ever going to be convinced by my words or my communication to let the people go. And again, he proposed that idea of his own human deficiency. I'm uncircumcised lips. I'm not a good speaker. I won't be persuasive enough. Thinking again, as we said before, that it actually has to do with his human ability 
that God was going to be able to accomplish what God wanted to do. And God here in chapter 7 now is again reassuring Moses. He's reinforcing the call of God upon his life and saying, Look, Moses, I don't want your excuses. All I'm looking for is your obedience. It's almost as if God says to Moses, like he often says to us, Moses, okay, I see it didn't work out. I hear the problems you're telling me, but Moses, here's my advice. Get back to work. Just go get back. Just go back to work. You know, just rather than sit around and, and postulate and think about why isn't it working or what do I need to do, just go get back to work. And I think sometimes the Lord tells us that when we get discouraged and, and downcast. I know how, how many times in my life, you know, the word of the Lord to me is not an explanation. It's just get back to it. Go back to what you're doing. Go preach another message. Go show up for another week. You know, just get back to work. Put your hand back to the plow. Let me take care of the rest. And that's kind of what we have the Lord doing here with Moses at this point. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you, notice, as a God, or as God, excuse me, to Pharaoh. And Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. So God tells Moses, listen, Moses, I want you to continue on the course that you're on. And I am going to use you in a way whereby you are going to be representative of myself to Pharaoh. He says in verse one there, I have made you not God as God. The idea is, again, a representation of God to Pharaoh. And why? Because Pharaoh himself thought he was a God. And what God is going to demonstrate to Pharaoh is that as Yahweh God, he was far superior in any way to what Pharaoh was, and Moses was going to be given God's divine authority as God's representative, the one who was anointed of God, the, the shepherd leader who God raised up for the people, and God's divine anointing is upon Moses, and he says, therefore, Moses, you are going to be as God, my anointing and my authority will be behind you, and you will be a representation of me to Pharaoh. And, you know, as I look at that, it's a great reminder for us because in the same way and in maybe a lesser way in the New Testament, the Bible tells us as Christians that we, in a sense, are representations of Jesus Christ to the unsaved world around us. In fact, the word Christians basically means little Christ. In fact, if you study the book of Acts, it says that the, you know, they were first called Christians you know, in a particular time in history. Prior to that time, they were called the way, uh, they were looked at as believers, and then this term Christians came about, and the idea originally was sort of a derogatory term. They're like a bunch of little Christs. That's what these people are like. All these people running around there, and they're just like a bunch of little Jesuses. Uh, and it, it was the indication was that they, they act like him, they talk like him, they, they, they just seem like a representation of him. And that truly, though it was a derogatory term initially, has been something that's come to be a label that we've adopted as followers of Jesus Christ. But it, it defines in some senses what we are to be. The Bible says... Uh, that we are not only the light of the world, that Jesus is the light of the world. Paul tells uh, the Christians, Corinthians when he's writing to them that they are epistles of Christ, that they are letters written in a sense that our lives are like living letters that people read. Uh, and when people read our lives, they should be able to read our lives and learn things about Jesus and learn things about spiritual life and God's plan. And, and that's sometimes a sobering reminder, that reality that we represent the Lord so truly in such a way whereby some people may not look to the Lord, but they'll watch you. And some people may not pick up and read a Bible, 
but they will read your life. And many times they'll deduce their decision of whether or not they're going to turn to the Lord or they're going to read the Bible on their own based upon what they see in your life as is so-called representative or by what they read of your life. Well, hey, he says he lives by this book now or she says she lives according to that book. So, uh, And they'll watch and they'll read our lives and we can have a powerful influence or if not careful, uh, we can also really dissuade people and cause a lot of distraction. So it is important and the Lord's endowed us with a sense of a measure of spiritual authority in our lives as Christians, as representatives to those who are in the world. So Pharaoh, uh, in a sense, was going to see God through the works and the life of Moses as God's divine uh, authoritative representative. And Aaron, notice, was going to help supplement what Moses complained was his deficiency, that he couldn't speak. So he says, Moses, this is what you're going to do. You speak all that I command you. You don't have to get creative. You don't have to be a good communicator. All you need to do is whatever I tell you, you tell Pharaoh. And the way you're going to do that, he says, whatever I command you, you shall tell Aaron and Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. So, again, a picture there of what prophecy is supposed to be, basically just a, a communication of the word of God. Whatever God says, the prophetic uh, utterance comes from, it is just a word spoken forth from God. And Aaron would function in this capacity as sort of a prophet uh, of God speaking what Moses would convey to him that God uh, first told him. Notice verse 3, again, God reminds Moses, he says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh, notice, will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. Of course, referring to the plagues and so forth and the other miraculous works which we'll see in the chapters ahead. Verse 5, God says, And the Egyptians, take notice here what it's saying, And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So a couple things we see here. First of all, that the Lord is clearly conveying that he has purposes and intentions behind this process of deliverance that's going to take place. And one of the very clear things we see referenced here in these verses, and we'll continue to see it, I want you to take notice, is again there in verse 5, that the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. That God is doing the things that he's doing for the purpose of revelation. That God was trying to reveal himself to Pharaoh. Of course, Pharaoh, as we read here, unfortunately, uh, won't heed the word of the Lord. And it says that he actually, we see many times, will harden his heart ultimately to the place, unfortunately, we'll see where ultimately then God hardens his heart. But God's intention, I mean, again, think about it. God could have the very first day, the very first hour, God could have moved in a miraculous way and brought instantaneous deliverance out of the land of Egypt for the children of Israel. You have to understand that, right? We look at what God does, the plagues and all that, and then ultimately the parting of the Red Sea. It wasn't as if God was just you know, delaying the process because he kept trying to scratch his head thinking, how do I get him out of there? Boy, that's tough. You know, well, that plague didn't work. Maybe I ought to try a different one. And then... Oh, no, how about and then find you. oh the Red Sea that's it it wasn't as if God was creatively trying to come up with an idea there was a process God was again superintending over 
in a time frame to reveal himself because he wanted the people of Egypt to know that he was God. He wanted Pharaoh in his mercy to repent of his stubbornness and his rebellion and to come to know Yahweh as God. Uh, he wanted the Israelites to further see a revelation of who this Yahweh God was that they were to truly worship and to follow. And all of the events, the signs and the wonders and the great judgments and so forth, it was all an effort of God to bring revelation. Now with Pharaoh, it was very tragic to realize that he is the, the picture of the complete resistance of God's merciful, patient tireless effort to reveal himself to a person and yet they reject him and they reject him and they reject him and pharaoh will continuously will see harden his heart verse three god says and i will harden pharaoh's heart and we need to remember there's a future tense to that uh, in fact it's not till chapter nine verse 12 that we actually read but the lord hardened the heart of pharaoh and he did not heed them just as the lord had spoken past tense to Moses. So again, important to recognize as we look at this whole thing because we wrestle with trying to understand the sovereignty of God and so on and so forth. Well, what's that mean that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? And why would God harden Pharaoh's heart and then hold him accountable? Well, I want you to take notice. Chapter 9, verse 12 says, then the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. But between now and chapter 9, verse 12, you'll see half a dozen times where it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh refused and stubbornly would not listen and would not respond. And, and the terms are even different. When it gets to the spot where it says, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, there the Hebrew literally indicates, and the Lord made firm or he stiffened Pharaoh's heart. The idea is that Pharaoh, having free will as we all do have, said no to God. He said no to God. He refused to listen. He wouldn't respond. He said no. He remained stubborn and prideful and he would not heed God. He would not respond to God. And he said no and no. He kept hardening his heart and hardening his heart. And eventually God honored his free will and in his sovereignty said, okay, if that is what you desire, then I will stiffen you in that place of rejection. I will give you what you want. And God in an incredibly sobering way ultimately in a sense says to pharaoh then i will stiffen your heart in that place of rejection if that is ultimately what you want and i know that's difficult to swallow but it's a sobering reminder that it is a dangerous thing for us to harden our hearts continuously against the lord we need to pray that god would keep our hearts soft and tender continuously as christians and we need to pray for those who we see resisting the Lord and refusing the Lord and refusing the Lord and refusing the Lord and hardening their hearts. Because, look, I, I'm not spiritual enough and I'm not God. I can't tell you where that place is out there where ultimately their heart becomes hardened to a place where it becomes to the place where it's not possible for them to believe anymore because they have so calloused their heart. Again, I don't delve into things that only God fully understands. I can only tell you what the Word of God says, and though I don't fully understand it, it's what God says, and we have to take it at face value by faith, though we can't comprehend it in our finite minds. But understand, it's a process whereby God gives opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. He's so long-suffering. He's so patient, and here God is just forewarning Moses of what will happen, how he will not heed him, and he's going to cause God to have to become more and more severe in the processes. And here, of course, we get some of the first references to these great judgments or these what we call 
plagues, the ten plagues we know that we'll see in these next verses ahead, that God is going to bring against Pharaoh and against the Egyptian people as a result of Pharaoh's resistance and refusal to let the children of Israel go. Now, let me just say a few things in regards to the plagues, if you'll permit me a moment of your patience before we go moving in and starting to look at these ten different plagues. First of all, please understand that the plagues are not random. Okay, please don't get the idea in your mind that the plagues, the ten plagues that we see about to happen, is just sort of God venting his frustration. You know, he just had just had enough of these stubborn little un you know, appreciative creatures down on that earth and he just ten times he just kinda <clears throat> he's gotta get a vent a little bit of his frustration, you know, let a little steam off. That's not what's taking place here. This is not God randomly venting his frustration. There is a very purposeful specific reason behind what God is doing with the ten specific plagues. First of all, is to refute or judge the false gods of Egypt. That's one of the main priorities of why God brings these specific plagues, even in particular that he does, is to refute and judge the false gods and deities that they worship. Some historians tell us that there were over 80 different deities there in Egypt. In fact, you might want to jot in your notes or in your margin. Let me just read two uh, verses to confirm this to you. Exodus 12:12 12 says this. God says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and listen to this, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment, for I am the Lord. And then we read as well in Numbers chapter uh, 33, verse 3 and 4, uh, historically referring back to this time, they departed from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month, on the day after the Passover of the children of Israel, they went out with boldness in the sight of all the Egyptians, for the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord killed among them, and also on their gods the Lord had executed his judgments." Again, so when you see God turn the, the Nile into blood, that's because they worshipped gods in connection to the Nile and the fertility that they thought it brought. When you see God bring each one of these unique plagues, and again, I'm not going to bore you with you know, names of different Egyptian deities. You can research and, and learn the stuff on your own if it appeals to you. But you'll notice there's a direct connection. With each plague, there was a, de there was a deity that was connected to that plague in such a sense, and God was basically saying, look, that God is no God. I'm God. And what you're worshiping, I am far superior of. And God's just trying to judge and demonstrate the falseness of what they worshiped in their idolatry. And secondly as well, God is seeking to bring revelation to Pharaoh, and as I said, and to all people, that he is the one true God. He's trying to reveal himself. You will see many times God will do something. He'll say, that Pharaoh may know. That Pharaoh may know. He, he's working in the way he was because he wanted to get Pharaoh's attention. And sometimes, I'll tell you, I believe sometimes the Lord, whether it is on a you know, national level, whether it's on a local level, or even to the place of where maybe it's on a family level or a personal level, I think sometimes... God and his great love for us will actually plague us for a purpose. Because sometimes God knows that's the clearest way to, to get our attention. 
you know, there's something about, you know, the, 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 the megaphone loudness of pain and problems that take place in our lives. So sometimes God, God for a purpose, will say, okay, I'm going to bring a little difficulty to do, because we all have a real sense of perking up and becoming more alert once we're plagued with some problem or difficulty. And God in his love will allow and permit and I think at times even plague us in some fashion. And I'm not saying everything that happens is a result of God's judgment against our lives. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But I think God will permit things in his sovereignty for the sense of awakening us to make us sensitive that we may know and maybe meet God for the first time in our real life and our life where we really cry out to God. Or we might come to know the Lord in a deeper way as we all do when we go through problematic things. Now in regards to the plagues, there's ten of them in total. Of course, ten ending with the firstborn. The last, the last plague, the tenth, is the firstborn. But the nine plagues prior to the last plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn, we'll take notice that basically there are three sets of three. And they come in that way specifically, three sets of three. In those three sets of three, the pattern is the first two are, are given with a warning. God predicts them before they come. The third of the set of three, God gives no warning and he just brings it in severity. And God will repeat the pattern three times in sort of these three sets of three with the plagues that come. And in regards to the plagues, people give all sort of goofy natural explanations, you know, natural phenomenons, a red tide, and that's why the, you know, the water turned red. And you know, people give these kind of natural explanations of how these, and personally, they're all just so foolish when you really think them through. These are supernatural, miraculous things that God did. And I think there are many evidences you'll see as we go through that just indicate that. First of all, just the severity of how intense they are. The severity of these plagues is way stronger than any possible natural occurrence. Because of the severity, it's evidence that there's a supernatural power behind it. Secondly, the plagues are predicted by God. Again, they weren't just some natural circumstantial catastrophe that happened randomly. God says, I'm going to do this, and then he does it. God says, I'm going to fill the whole land with frogs, and then he fills the whole land with frogs. It wasn't just all of a sudden they had a frog infestation. Okay? God says, I'm going to turn the water to blood, and then he does exactly. So God predicts it, and then he turns right around and does what he says. Another thing that indicates they're supernatural as well is the discretion in the areas affected. Sometimes we'll see God will bring a plague in one area, and in an, another area where the Israelites are, he won't allow the plague to have any impact there at all. So God has discretion. Okay, I'll, I'll let the plague be right here, but whoop, he puts a border right there, and it does not touch or harm any of his people, even though the Egyptians were suffering. So God uses discretion of where he allows those things to happen, and God is able to remove and relieve the plagues at will. He can bring them, and then he can... The next day, just turn around and take them right away uh, at will. So just, again, very clear evidences in regards to these plagues as we, we work our way through them. Well, come back with me here to verse 6. Let's, let's move on. It says, Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses, take notice, the Bible tells us, was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh, so 80 and 83 when they began their ministry. So uh, God shows us in his word, no excuses for uh, age restrictions on when we can be useful to God and when we can't. You know, I'm too old to serve the Lord. I'm too old to start being useful for the Lord. And they were 80 and 83 when they started. You know, and the same applies the other way. The Bible also tells 
us in places like Timothy, you know, don't let someone despise your youth. So God doesn't put age restrictions. Uh, if you're breathing, God says uh, you're available still. Uh, and at any given time, God can put his anointing and call on your life and begin to use you if you make yourself available to his purposes. 80 and 83, as they step into this ministry uh, to be used by God to deliver the people of Israel. Verse 8, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying... Notice this, God tells them in advance what Pharaoh's going to say. When Pharaoh speaks to you and says, Show a miracle for yourselves. Then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. So, again, I, Lord, in advance says to him, Look, Here's what's going to happen. You're going to walk into Pharaoh's uh, palace there, into his office. And who do you think you are? You represent Yahweh God. Prove. If you represent some God, then tell your God to prove himself. Tell your God to demonstrate himself. Tell your God to, you know, to show. If you're in co contact with God, then let's see what your God can do. So God says, look, he, this is what he's going to do. He's going to call you out. And he's going to ask you for a miracle. And I love how the Lord, again, can tell us in advance what's going to happen before something even does. Again, why? Because he's God. That's one of the benefits of being a child of God. That, that, that Though we live in a time realm continuum and we don't know what's going to happen an hour from now or tomorrow, we serve a God who the Bible says is the beginning and the end. God spans all of time and eternity. So God can speak, speak of something. That's where prophecy is really such a, a simple understandable thing from the perspective of well how, how can somebody tell something 700 years in advance well listen god is the beginning and he is the end so god can speak of something for us that's 700 years away as if it's right now because he's already there <clears throat> because he's god he's not limited like us and i just find this beautiful god giving insight to his servants you know when you serve the lord the bible says the secret of the lord is with those who fear him and he tells moses and aaron here listen when you go in, he's going to challenge you. He's going to call you out. Be ready for it. The Bible tells us in Peter, we'll see as we start to study, you know, that we should be ready to have a defense for those who question us. Uh, and here, they're going to be questioned and called out on their relationship with God. He's going to say, show a miracle. And when he says that to you, he says, Moses, you tell Aaron to take the rod and cast it down before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. Remember that miracle that God did? Prior to this, when he was reinforcing the call on Moses' life, he cast down his rod and it miraculously turned into a serpent. He says, remember that one? Do what you did before and watch me that I'm the God who changes not and I'll perform my power to represent myself in front of Pharaoh. You just tossed your stick down and I'll do the rest. And I'm so glad that that's all they had to do. <laughs> it makes me feel very comfortable. God says, look, all you got to do is drop the stick. All right, just... And I, I'll do all the rest. And I think sometimes that's what it's like with us. The Lord says, that's all you Just can you pick up a stick for me? All right, just don't do anything else. Just throw your cane down and let me do everything else. Stay, stay out of the way. And God gives us just about this much responsibility and involvement. And he, by his power, does everything else to represent himself. Take your rod, cast it down, let it become a serpent. Verse 10, so Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they did so just as the Lord commanded. That's a wise child of God and a smart servant ministry. Don't do some idea you got. Just do what the Lord has commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before the servants, and it became a serpent. 
But Pharaoh also called the wise men and sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt, and they did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod, notice, swallowed up their rods. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. So this event unfolds here. They go in. He challenges them. Aaron throws down his rod. God faithfully performs his miraculous transition of this rod into a serpent, just like he said he would. Now, if it's of interest to you, commentators point out here that this term in verse 12 here, when it says it became a serpent, uh, is actually a, a different Hebrew term representing potentially some type of a larger serpent, or some say it even represents a, a crocodile a type creature here. Um, whatever the case, God, again, is either repeating or expanding upon the miracle that he already did the first time he showed this to Moses. But take, take notice of verse 11, what happens. It doesn't seem Pharaoh's phased by this. You know, here they do this really you know, pretty impressive miracle. And verse 11 says that Pharaoh calls in, notice his wise men. These would be like his cabinet members, his advisors. His sorcerers, these would be those, again, who were involved in the divination, occultic practices, and so forth, and the magicians of Egypt. So people who were involved in, in, in pagan practices, involved with the occult and black arts. Again, take notice, there were people in the cabinet of Pharaoh there, wise men, sorcerers, magicians, who could do, notice, enchantments, uh, these were people who were very deeply ingrained in all types of dark satanic activity. And, and Pharaoh's not the slightest bit, it seems, even really that impressed at first. He calls them in, and verse 12 says that they then actually, it seems, replicate the miracle. They threw down their rods, seems that were multiple ones, and they became serpents, now, we look at that, and some people instantly struggle. Oh, that must have been some sleight of hand or something. I mean, they couldn't have really done that. You know, probably what it was was they did some, you know, little pyrotechnic thing, and a smoke went off, and then, you know, somebody threw a snake out of a basket or whatever. I, I, I even read one commentary where uh, this author uh, tried to convey that there was a special spot on the back of the neck uh, of a cobra or a serpent that these magicians and sorcerers knew how to push on this pressure point and then it paralyzed the snake. And, and when the snake was paralyzed, it was in a paralyzed position, like a comatose, that then when they threw it down to the ground, they let go of the pressure point and then when it hit the ground, it woke back up. And so, so it looked like a rod when it came in because it was basically a paralyzed serpent. So it looked like they just had a, you know, a staff when they came in and then they let go of the pressure point and threw it. Listen, I think that it was a sign and a wonder in the same way that God miraculously did a sign and a wonder. And I say that because the Bible teaches that Satan himself has the ability to do miraculous signs and wonders and supernatural things. Again, when we read in regards to the upcoming you know, activities of the Antichrist, who ultimately will be, in a sense, to me, Satan, in a sense, personified, someone indwelt probably by Satan himself being used on the earth during the time of the tribulation. Second Thessalonians 2.9 says this, 
the coming of the lawless one, referring to the Antichrist, the coming of the lawless one, listen, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Revelation chapter 13 regarding the activity of the Antichrist and then his evil sidekick, the false prophet, as the Bible refers to him as, it tells us this regarding the false prophet assisting the Antichrist. It says, he performs great signs so that even he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of of the beast. Again, we need to realize just because we see something miraculous, a sign, a wonder, some supernatural experience, if it's a news flash, please realize that does not necessarily mean that God is the source behind that. The devil has the capacity as a supernatural creature to be able, the Bible says, to perform signs and wonders and, and the purpose of them is deception lying signs and wonders and in some ways that is a very effective thing because people see a sign or a wonder oh wow you know and and what and it becomes a very strong reinforcement to, to then follow after whatever that force is and our world listen especially as we move further towards the last days our world the bible says is scheduled for a tremendous deception and the difference is, is that when the devil does a lying sign or wonder, he's looking to lead people in their faith in a different direction other than submission to Jesus Christ or walking closer towards the Lord. So when some sign or wonder, a miraculous sideshow or whatever it is takes place, the thing that we have to look at to determine the source of that is, does that point me to Jesus Christ? Does that lead me closer to God? Is that something that is done in a way that's in accordance with the heart of God and the will of God? Or, or is this signs and wonder show or the signs and wonder? Is that drawing me in a different direction after something else or someone else? And here we see these sorcerers, these satanic occultic practices coming in. They perform this same type of a wonder here. These snakes are on the ground, a group of them now. But notice verse 12. This is the key part. But Aaron's rod, in other words, the miraculous serpent God created, swallowed up all of their rods, plural. So this one serpent that God had there, uh, he just devoured all the other serpents and probably sat there with a little toothpick afterwards, you know, just enjoying the fact that he had no problem devouring everyone else. And again, the point is this, is God is trying to reinforce and indicate, listen, though there may be some power involved in Satan's dark practices, it is nothing in comparison to the power of Almighty God himself. And here God is just reinforcing his complete authority to trump over anything that the devil is able to do, that the devil's power is nothing. They're not equal. Again, please always remember that. The devil is a created being. Sometimes people get this impression that God and the devil are like they're, they're like arch enemies, you know, like Batman and... Um, the Joker, who's that Batman's guy, right? You know, like, like, or they have like, you know, equal power. And that's not, listen, there's God and there's everything else. The devil was, he was a created angelic being. He's not equal to God in his power. And here, look, God just swallows up all these uh, other serpents that were miraculously brought about in this occasion here. But verse 13, again, here's this tragic 
tragic testimony. As this happens, you would think that the people would be astonished as this one serpent just devours all these other serpents as a clear testimony of the power of Yahweh God. But verse 13 says, but Pharaoh's heart, what? It just grew hard. And he did not heed them, as the Lord said. What did he do? He just resisted the testimony of God. He, he just chose to refuse in his heart. I, I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to buy into that. And here God tried to reveal himself. He's trying to, to reveal himself and reach out to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh hardens his heart. He refuses and hardens his heart. Verse 14, and it's a pattern that perpetuates. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. Now, uh, please understand here, when it says that Moses is to go out and to meet Pharaoh by the river's bank, uh, the, the Nile it's referring to, it says he's going out to the water in the morning hours. Pharaoh would not be going out in the morning hours here to bathe at the Nile. So that please don't misunderstand, he's not doing that. He is, this is Pharaoh here. He had much nicer places to bathe and to cleanse himself than to take a walk down to the Nile outside of his you know, palace empire that he might be living in. And he's not going down there to get some drinks uh, you know, or, or to fill up some pitchers of water. Uh, he's going down to the Nile, as we'll see. It was a, a repeated habit in his life because it was connected to a form of worship. That again, he himself worshipped the Nile. The Nile was basically the life source for all of Egypt. It, it was it was a God connected to their fertility and to their land being able to have life. So him going down to the Nile, this is connected to a sacred worship practice of going down to the Nile to pay some sort of homage to the gods of the Nile first thing in the morning. And, and, and God, knowing this is what he did in this idolatrous worship practice, his heart's hard towards God. He's deceived in his spiritual perceptions of what he should be worshiping. So God says... I'm going to try and reach him where he's at again. Go down, meet him there, Moses. Stand on the river's bank. And the rod which was turned to a serpent, you shall take it in your hand. That same emblem of God's authority again. And you shall say to him, verse 16, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Again, God's trying to reprove him. He's trying to get his attention and wake him up. Thus says the Lord, by this, here's our statement again, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. And again, I can't help but to wonder how many times. God may not be saying it audibly, but certainly he is saying it circumstantially. He is saying it indirectly when he's working in people's lives. By this, by what I'm doing right now in your life, I want you to know that I'm the Lord. I want you to know me. I want you to discover me, to realize who I am. It's by this that I'm trying to show myself to you. So often that's what God's doing. And, and here, thus says the Lord, by this, Pharaoh, you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters... Uh, or to in the river with the rod that is in my hand and they shall be turned to blood and the fish that are in the river shall die again if it was a red tide that wouldn't be the case the, 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 the blood river uh, was what was causing all the life sources to die in it and the river shall stink 
God wants us to know that. And the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. So notice, even the water that had already been drawn out excuse me, of the river that was in buckets around the land and in pitchers of stone. Again, if this was a red tide, then how would God, if it was just a red tide and natural phenomenon, how did the buckets of water turn to blood? How did the pitchers of stone that had water them turn to blood? Again, because this was a miraculous intervention. This wasn't a natural phenomenon. God's just miraculously bringing a plague and a judgment. Everything that was a water source turned into blood. And Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. All the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And the fish that were in the river died. And the river stank. <laughs> of the Holy Spirit's language. The river stank and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. So this first plague, God turns all the water throughout the land into ponds, the Nile River, its tributaries that went off it, even in the pitchers of stone and the buckets of wood, it's all turned to blood. The, the fish are dying. You, know, you have putrefying flesh all around. The water is, is undrinkable at this point. And again, just really causing tremendous stress on the life of the people and civilization. And again, just going to show you, look, one man hardening his heart and look at the pain and the problems is bringing to everyone else around him. Now, don't ever tell me that one person's sin doesn't affect other people. And all the more when somebody's in a place of influence. Uh, Pharaoh's hardness of heart and stubbornness to obey God is making everybody else around him suffer as a result. They're all suffering as the water has all been turned to blood now. Verse 22, look what happens. And the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. And Pharaoh's heart, here it is again, grew hard. And he did not heed them as the Lord had said. So a very, very stubborn man. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and neither was his heart moved by this. To me, to me that is absolutely just a tragic statement that his heart was not moved by this. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes I watch, you know, occurrences happen in people's lives, and you're thinking, surely this, surely this has got to move his heart. Surely this is gonna move her heart. I mean, and 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 it's amazing the capacity of the hardness of the human heart. I mean, have you ever watched and observed maybe situation things that happened? And you're thinking, man, certainly now that they're in that spot in life or because this has happened or that certainly that is going to get their attention or finally their heart's going to be moved to respond to God or to submit or to cry out to the Lord. And, and, and yet it's amazing how hard the human heart can be. It's scary. To me, free will is, is really a scary reality. 
that God has given us the capacity to be free moral agents and to realize how he honors that and he lets us exercise it. That God is a loving gentleman and yet how stubborn as human beings we can be in our sinfulness. How hard-hearted we can be towards God as he reaches out and reaches out and tries for us to see who he is and that he has a plan and intention for our lives and yet we won't submit in our pridefulness and our stubbornness. Pharaoh's heart was not moved. Even after all these great events, his heart was still not moved. Now take notice as well, verse 22, what happens? These magicians and enchanters and sorcerers come again and what do they do? It says that they as well went and and tried to replicate uh, the same activity here. It says the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. So the idea is they they turned more water. And again, how they did this, whether they took a bowl and did it, I'm not sure specifically. But we'll notice that these magicians and sorcerers, what are they doing? They're replicating miracles. And I'm thinking if I'm Pharaoh, look, I don't want you to turn more water into blood. I want you to turn the blood back into water so we can drink it again, you know. But again, this is the devil. The devil not only brings relief. The devil just brings more misery. He just adds problems to problems. And they come to try and, you know, oh, we can do that too. Watch this. You know, and then he goes, I don't want you, I want you to fix the problem. But the devil doesn't fix problems. He just magnifies problems. Verse 24, so all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink. They became desperate because they could not drink the water of the river and seven days passed after the Lord struck the river. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Again, God wanted to deliver them, that they may serve the Lord. That's always why God wants to save and deliver people. He wants to save and deliver people that we might serve him. That's his ultimate purpose. So again, let my people go, that they may serve me. Again, God gives warning, verse 2, but if you refuse to let them go, again, notice, God's again warning, I will smite your territory with frogs. Here's now the second plague. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house and into your bedroom. Imagine that, turning over in the morning, it says, and on your bed and into your houses of your servants and your people, into your ovens. And into your kneading bowls, and frogs shall come up on you and your people and on all your servants. So the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, the rivers, the ponds, and cause the frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. So again, you want to talk about Complete misery. I mean, there were some frogs around the marshy areas of the Nile River. But notice here, God just inundates the whole land with so many frogs where they're invading every home. It says they're in your bedroom, they're on your bed. So imagine you turn your head over on your pillow and there's a frog there. Oh, you, know, and you realize they're all in the bed with you and you get up and then they're over the floor. You're stepping on them. They're in your pots and pans and, and you're rubbing them. It just has gross experience. Just frogs everywhere all throughout the land, just making it utterly miserable for them. And again, one of the gods that they worship was a, a goddess that had a female body and a frog-like head. Now, I don't know the world would be attractive about that. And apparently she was supposed to be the wife of a male god. And you can 
do a little research and discover this. But And here's the thing. They would not kill those frogs because they were deemed sacred. So, and see, God knew. So, so all these frogs, just this, oh, gross, man, all these frogs. But you can't kill the frogs because they're gods. You don't want to kill God. That's not good. You don't kill your gods. You let your gods live. So God knew they wouldn't kill them. They would just be made miserable by them. But he's, again, trying to bring judgment on their false gods and show that he's the one true God. All these frogs inundate the land. Everyone must have just been utterly miserable. And verse 7, here we are again. And the magicians did so with their enchantments. Oh, yeah, that's just what we needed. More frogs. Why not? <laughs> they do the same. And they brought frogs on the land of Egypt. Again, what are they doing? They're just making the problem worse. But I want you to take... But they, what they can't do is they can't bring relief. They can't bring relief. They can't solve the problem. The devil only magnifies problems. He only makes things worse. Again, here they're just trying to demonstrate, hey, we can do the same thing. Somehow they do their enchantments and more frogs come, just making the people more miserable, making it worse. But again, that's what the devil seeks to do. He wants to make lives miserable, to rob, kill, and destroy. The devil never wants to bring relief or, or solve problems. He just wants to make people more miserable because he is just a master of destruction and lives. So more frogs now, as if they didn't have enough, are all over the land. And Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron, and he said, Entreat the Lord that he may take the frogs from me <laughs> and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Again, here he is. He's in desperation. And he's doing one of these, Okay, I submit, I submit. The problems are too bad. This is just miserable. I can't take it. Tell your God to take away the frogs, and, and, and I'll, I'll do what he, what he said. But we see he wasn't sincere. We'll see. Verse 9, so notice Moses said to Pharaoh, Accept the honor, he says to him, of saying when I shall intercede for you, for your servants and your people, to destroy the frogs from you and your houses, that they remain in the river only. So, so take notice what Moses does. Moses, again, he's in tune with the heart of God. So he says, okay, you want me to ask my God, the one true God who brought these frogs in the land to, to be removed. Because your, your, your servants and your powers that you worship of your false dark gods, they can't help you. But you're, 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 you're sensing that my God can help you. He said, I want to validate to you that you can't question that it was indeed God. That I'll tell you what, you tell me the exact time you want the frogs to go away. I like that. You, he's given God a chance to work. You tell I'm, you accept the honor. Tell me when you want me to pray and ask the frogs to go away. That way you can't question whether was that really God or wasn't. He wanted to validate again that it truly was the Lord. You pick, he says, the time when I shall intercede for you. This is shocking to me, verse 10. So he said, how about tomorrow? And I'm thinking, tomorrow? You're, you're miserable. Why would you say tomorrow? Why not today? I have no idea why he said tomorrow other than the fact that when a person's heart is hard, their mind is completely deceived. Their judgment is off. You're thinking, why would anybody who's in misery want to stay in their misery longer? But have you ever done that yourself? Or have you ever watched other people do that? And, and you're thinking, why would you say tomorrow when you could be free today? Why wouldn't you? Aren't you sick of this? Don't you want to be liberated right now? No, I'll, 
yeah, I'll just I'll wait till tomorrow. I'll put, and and people because when a heart is hard, it's a it's a, an indication as well that the mind is just deceived, and their reasoning capacities are completely off track again. Because why they're they're wanting a sense of control, and there's something very just bizarre in all of this. He says tomorrow. And he said, okay, let it be according to your word that you may, look, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And the frogs shall depart from you and your houses and your servants and from your people, and they shall remain in the river only. And then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses... Again, interesting to see how God responded to this man's prayer. It shows you the relationship he had with the Lord. The Lord responded to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Again, the Bible tells us. Again, God didn't make the frogs just go go hopping back into the Nile River where they came from. God just let them all die which just allowed in a sense the problem to just have a greater intensity and now here are the Egyptians these you know decaying frog carcasses all over and they're you know just shoveling heaps and piles of frogs just you know decomposing there in the the hot you know ancient culture that they were in there the frogs died out in the houses and again if you've ever had a dead animal uh, one dead animal die anywhere and be decomposing and the stench of that and you can imagine what it was like, the misery, the stench. Um, but, you know, sometimes the Lord has a way of allowing us to just become so sick of wanting to have our own little way sometimes. I have found that sometimes the Lord has to work in a way with certain people where you know, he, he allows them to eat the fruit of their own consequences. And he says, okay. You know, I don't know what it's going to take, but uh, the, the easy way doesn't seem to work for you. So maybe you just need to, to have life so stanky, so stinky, so gross and defiled to where finally you begin to, to become so sick of what you're creating for yourself. Again, as he's in his love trying to reach out. And, and again, some of us are more stubborn and hard-headed than others. So they're shoveling up all these frogs. Look at verse 15 here regarding Pharaoh again. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them, as the Lord had said. Man, I'll tell you, is that a capstone verse on some of the things already we're looking at? When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, the Hebrew word there literally is breathing space. When he saw there was, okay, there's, there's a little space and get my breath now again. The, the pressure from the problems is coming off. There's a little bit of relief from the storm and the plague and the, you know, the tragedy that I was just in the middle of just prior to this. When he saw that there began to be some relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. And again, just shows you the insincerity of Pharaoh's heart. Again, oh, please, just get rid of these frogs. Please, please. I'm just, I'm desperate. Anything, if, if you get rid of these frogs, I'll serve God. If the problem goes away, I'm going to serve God. Oh, just whatever. Anything, just solve the problem. If the problem goes away, I'll serve God. And what, it's, it's, the, it's the crisis spirituality. 
And then as soon as there's relief, he sees a little bit of relief, he gets a little bit of breathing room, turns his back on God and goes right back the other way again. It was never sincere in his heart. And man, what a sad testimony to the reality of how many people do this a lot of times. It's sort of that, it's that crisis spiritual awakening that when their world's in crisis, right? Anything to do with God, nothing to do with God, harden their heart, reject God, resist God, reject God, resist God. And then some of the crises come into their lives, they come into all of our lives, or sometimes it's just the consequences of their own problems they create by living a life in rebellion and opposition to God. And then their whole world is in crisis. And when their world's in crisis, what happens? All of a sudden, now, man, they are hot and desperate for God in a way like never before. Oh, pray for me, man. And now I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm going to serve God. Please pray that God fixes this. And, and, and there's the whole desperation mode. And then as soon as the problem begins to just subside a little bit, and God sometimes, even in His grace, He, he relieves them. He intervenes in His love. He's kind to them still. And He... He gets them out of a mess or he starts to give them some relief and some breathing room. And what happens? Exactly like Pharaoh. They just harden their heart and they turn back away from God again. I'll tell you, man, I can't tell you how many times, especially in pastoral ministry, not only just Christian friendships, I have seen this thing play out again and again and again and again. You know, I almost have a you know a list of a few people where it's just it, it's the pattern. You know, when, when the crisis hits, you know, they're calling, oh, oh, Pastor Tony, pray for me, pray for me. Oh, I've been praying all day, pray for me, pray for me. Oh, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm gonna... yeah, and, and, and you pray for them and you show love to them. And then as soon as there's a little bit of relief, they disappear again. You don't hear from them anymore. They don't ever show up anymore. They just drop off the radar altogether until the next crisis comes around again. And you know, that, that's a tragic place to be. It's a really tragic place to be. It's a place of insincerity. And you know, in some senses, it's a reminder and a testimony that it's somewhere that we don't want to be. I don't want to be somebody. I don't want to be somebody who, and I understand, listen, I understand that desperate times bring desperate prayers. And God uses trials in all of our lives to sometimes awaken us a little bit. But I, you know, when the Lord moves in a way whereby maybe he lets me touch a little bit of you know, the, the, the fires of trial in my life to awaken me and I cry out to him and he answers. I want that to precipitate in my heart a gratitude that would make me have a more tender heart towards the Lord, a more passionate heart towards the Lord. To say, Lord, because, like David says, you know, Lord, I, you know, I cried out to you and you heard me. My heart was overwhelmed. Lord, I cried out to you in my stress. And, 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 and I, you have my feet were in miry clay and you delivered me. You put my feet up on a rock and Lord, I want to serve you now. I want to serve you with passion. I think that's what the Lord wants in the opposite sense. That we would not have the experience of Pharaoh here and such a tragic testimony of what we see of many in the world that I think when these things happen, sometimes you know, there's an occasion to, to bring that to someone's attention and to remind them of it. Look, man, how many times have we done this? How many times has this pattern taken place here? The Lord's trying to get your attention. Harden your heart towards the Lord. Turn towards the Lord. And I think it's a reminder for us in our own lives that we would guard our hearts against that. And when, when God lets us go through this process, that we would reciprocate in appreciation to the Lord and walk with Him in faithfulness. So why don't we stand? We'll have to cap off right there for tonight. We'll pick up with the plague of lice next time. I'm sure that excites all of you. Bring your, bring your knit combs and everything. You'll be scratching your head when we start talking about it.
I know how that process works.